the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, equipping tall ships and a star to steer them by with the necessary gravity of purpose. Easy A's and sleazy phase. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I am Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of our two-part interview with two-time World Fantasy Award-winning author Tim Powers. Tim also won the Philip K. Dick Award two times, by the way, which equips this week's podcast with a whole bunch of snake eyes, which I'm not sure what to do with. Tim talks with us about his short story collection, Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers, which brings together all of the short fiction of this critically acclaimed and much-beloved author, Every last published power story so far we got in this collection. We'll talk with Tim about more of that wonderful weirdness this time and conclude the interview. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Hey, there are some great new e-arcs out now at Bain eBooks. Now, an e-arc is the sound a balloon makes when you fill it full of the exhalations of methane-breathing aliens and then stretch the mouth, you know, the way you can do that, to open and play Hayden's Horn Concerto in D major at the bottom of the atmospheric well on Jupiter. Squeaky does it. No, no, no. An e-arc is when we issue an e-book that is the copy-edited version of a book but not yet proofread. Uh, we put it out early and we put it up for sale at Bain eBooks. These are not available anywhere else except at Bain eBooks. And you can get them there, and it means you can get things before anyone else can, and um, you can get them in this beautiful form where um, where you can find all the typos that have crept into it that we haven't quite eliminated yet, which we uh, attempt to do with our proofreading rounds after that. So the eARC that is out right now is one I'm proud of, which is called Star Destroyers. It's edited by me and by Bain editorial assistant Christopher Rocchio. Let me just read you some of the copy we wrote for the back cover. In space, size matters. Boomers, ships of the line, star destroyers. The bigger the ship, the better the bang. From the dawn of history onward, commanding the most powerful ship around has been a dream of admirals, sultans, emperors, kings, generalissimos, and sea captains everywhere. For what the intimidation factor alone doesn't achieve, a massive barrage from superweapons probably will. Thus it was and ever shall be, even into the distant future, from the oceans of Earth to beneath the ice of Europa to the distant reaches of galactic empires. It is the great warships and their crews that sometimes keep civilization safe for the rest of us and sometimes become an extinction-level event in themselves. These are the stories Christopher and I gathered together over the past year from longtime Bane writers and Bane-related folks, from David Drake's excellent short story Superweapon to Mike Williamson's Hate in the Darkness to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's excerpts from Two Lives to 12 more. These are stories that are by Bane writers. Almost all of these writers are Bane writers that you know and love uh, that have books that we publish and they're written for Bane readers. That was my sole aim in putting this thing together, to get you great science fiction about big spaceships, big battleships of the future, and the men and women who command, crew, and fight them. And listen to the list of contributors. Come on. David Drake, who is the creator of the Republic of Cinnabar series. Um, Steve White, the Jason Thanos series, Oblivion, um, the Starfire series, etc. Mark L. Van Name, the John and Lobo series. He's a contributor. Mike Coopery, uh, whose Sins of Her Father is coming out and whose um, previous book in that series uh, was um, Her Brother's Keeper and who's written with Larry Correa. Jody Lynn Nye, the Imperium series out from Bain. J.R. Dunn, who completed with Robert Conroy the day after Gettysburg. 
uh, Michael Z. Williamson, Freehost Series and others. Um, you know, Mike Williamson, we had him on the podcast many times. Gray Reinhardt, Walking on the Sea of Clouds is his new book. It's out from Wordfire Press, and Gray is, of course, the Bane Slushmaster General, our slush reader here at Bane. Uh, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Leaden Universe series. Of course, Sharon and Steve often here. Uh, Dave Barra, The Lightship Chronicles. That's a DAW series, and Dave is a is an old friend of mine and uh, a friend to Bane. Joel Presby, who wrote the Hellsgate series uh, last novel along with David Weber, The Road to Hell. Susan R. Matthews, whose new book is Blood Enemies and is the creator of the Under Jurisdiction series. Robert Butner, the Orphan's Legacy series. You know Bob Butner's excellent uh, Heinlein-esque uh, fiction. Christopher Rocchio, uh, who works here in the office with us. He's got a new series out called the Sun Eater series. That's going to be from Daw, and his book is going to be called The Empire of Silence. Brendan Dubois, the Dark Victory series. Multiple, multiple winner of uh, Seamus Awards and Mystery stories as well. Brendan is just a master short story writer, and we closed out that collection with uh, with a great story by Brendan. So, Star Destroyers, edited by Tony Daniel and Christopher Rocchio, is out now at BaneyBooks.com in eARC form. Check it out. You're gonna love it. This is part two of a two-part interview with Tim Powers talking about his new book, Down and Out in Purgatory. Part one can be found on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Hello, glad to be here. Uh, Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels, Last Call and Declare. Declare also received the International Horror Guild Award. His novel on Stranger Tides was used for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean installment um, on Stranger Tides, strangely enough. Um, that's the title, too, which is a great title. His book, The Anubis Gates, won the Philip K. Dick Award and is considered a modern science fiction classic by me and many others. Great book. Tim won the P.K. Dick Award again for Dinner at Deviant's Palace, another book I really like. Many of the novels, such as Expiration Date, Earthquake, Weather, and, and Tim's new book, Alternate Routes, all of them are coming out from Bain Books next summer um, and fall. And often uh, what Tim will do is use historical events in which supernatural and metaphysical elements influence the story in weird and uh, compelling manner. Um, Tim grew up in Southern California, where he still resides with his wife, Serena. Tim is also a wonderful, award-winning short story writer, as one might expect, and out now at booksellers everywhere is Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers. These are them, all of Tim's short fiction in one uh, in one place. Well, all of it that Tim wanted us to collect, which is... <laughs> it's everything. Which is, yeah. Uh, including uh, a new story that's never appeared anywhere else except uh, at Bain.com, Sufficient Unto the Day, um, which is which is just out. But the Thomas Edison uh, ghost is appears in expiration date, by the way. Right, yeah, expiration out. date uh, got its start because I was idly reading a biography of Edison and came across several bits that were just too weird. I thought, okay, wait a second. What, what was really going on here? This is too strange. Before we go on to anything else, I really want to hear the story about the Jehovah Witness or whoever they were that came around trying to witness to you. Yeah, well, this was an example of people who believed they were seeing the supernatural happening in the real world. Yeah, one one afternoon, uh, there was a knock on our door, and uh, there were several Jehovah Witnesses standing there, smiling, wearing neckties, and had their children with them and Bibles, and uh, they said, we're here to tell you about Jesus. And I said, we're Catholic. We already know about Jesus. And they said, Catholic? That's worse than zero. Uh, atheists are better off than Catholics. And I said, is that so? Why is that? And they gave me a couple of misunderstood objections. And I said, okay, let me see your Bible, and I'll show you right in there why you're wrong. 
I won't use one of my own Bibles. They're Catholic. You'll think we messed with it. But, but let me see your Bible. And the guy said, okay, and handed his Bible over to me. And I flipped to, I think, the first page of John's Gospel. And I started to read, but I always have to read with a magnifying glass. And we were standing outdoors, and it was a very sunny day. And inevitably, <laughs> I wound up setting their Bible on fire. And I I beat it out on my leg, you know, and it's smoking, and I handed it toward him and said sorry, and he just backed away, holding up his hands like, you keep it. <laughs> uh, I still have it. Um, you literally repaired their Bible, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I did, right. And my thought was, look what God thinks of your translation of the Bible, but I know they went back and told all their friends, those Catholics, they just have to touch a Bible and it bursts into flames. That's right. It was a very um, awkward moment, really. That's hilarious, though. And that was um, that was something you uh, that that you put in the authors afterwards. So you can find that whole story in uh, in the afterwards to uh, to uh, vowel repairman story in in this collection. So a lot of these stories take place in L.A. Um, I don't know anybody. I mean, there's there's writers, you know, who who get a noirish sense of L.A. and even a, a beautiful and evocative sense. Um, but you seem to see the entire basin as this place dripping with archetypes and magic. Um, and I lived in L.A. for a couple of years, including in Orange County down there, and I, I understand how weird it can be. Why do you think that you draw, I mean, you, I guess it's just living there, you draw such an inspiration from this setting and you use it again and again? Yeah, um... Well, L.A. has always seemed uh, partly to have one foot in another world. Um, for one thing, it's it's entirely artificial. It should be a desert. Um, it, it's only because of uh, things like the rape of the Owens Valley that L.A. exists at all. Uh, so... From the start, it's kind of um, not exactly Land of Oz or Shangri-La, but there's something otherworldly about it. Um, and it's also, maybe therefore, it's always um, been a haven for screwy cults. Uh, everything from mystical Eastern monasteries that you find hidden in the hills to Satanist biker gangs and Charlie Manson. And then, of course, you've also got the whole history of the movie business with all its secret eccentricities. Um, and, of course, the freeways, uh, which are, as I said, arguably partly outside of linear time. <laughs> and um, it's really weird how it always takes you an hour to get where, I mean, if it's yeah. on, on the freeways, always, whether it's two, 20 miles away or two miles away. <laughs> yeah, uh, because you're participating in freeway time. You've stepped out of our normal time. Uh, it, it seems like an obviously fertile ground to have supernatural stuff going on. And, you know, the the uh, semi-tropical weather, the palm trees, the beaches, uh, Malibu, Hollywood, um, there's always... Uh, a uh, uh, slightly deviant, in the sense of deviating from a linear course, sense to it. Um, there, there were in the L.A. Times in the 30s stories about tunnels under Los Angeles built by lizard men. And this was in the L.A. Times as straight news. Uh, in fact, the lizard men's headquarters, according to the Times, was in the spot which now is occupied by the enormous um, Catholic cathedral uh, in downtown L.A. I see. And one day I will find an explanation for that. Well, it's probably, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses that spoke with you are right about Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. To, yeah, to I should have let them talk. The cults underneath, yeah. But... Uh, it, 
so yeah, I mean, LA is, 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 it's just weirdly verdant for no reason. And it always looks like it's going to, you know, bad weather is coming, but it doesn't come. And yeah, there's always the threat of the, the big earthquake. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, you use it to wonderful effect. Um, Let's talk about another uh, story in the collection, I guess the title story, Down and Out in Purgatory, um, which is a really weird one. <laughs> it will be for some readers. Um, I, you have to, uh, the reader has to uh, hang with you a bit, when, but but I think it's worth it. It's it's uh, basically about a guy who seeks his revenge on the other side of death. Um actually sort of seeking to snuff out somebody from real, real existence. Um, Yeah. um, It it is a weird place. It's sort of a a consensual reality, um, which is a mix of um, the memories of all the souls in the place. So there's a lot of, uh, inevitably, a lot of contemporary pop culture stuff mixed in um i did try to make it aggressively physical um i didn't want it let it be a kind of a dreamy mystical blur i wanted it to be very tangible um and i made it be a spinning disc with pieces breaking off at the edges and centrifugal force kind of providing increasing gravity as you moved away from the center which would make it inevitable that this is a place you couldn't stay on. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it was by physical definition, uh, inevitably necessarily, uh, a kind of way station. Um, yeah, you're sort of slowly slung off. Yeah. Eventually you get flung off the edge yeah. into nobody knows quite what. What is, I mean, the thing about your books and your stories is that, as as strange as sometimes you present the magical reality or the spirit of the or the supernatural reality to be, it it has rules. Um, do you think these through? Um, do they come to you as because everything really? I mean, you touch one part and the other part moves in one of your stories. You know what I mean? It's 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 not just uh, it, it's not random weirdness. Age. Yeah, and the rules might be illogical. Um, Like a lot of times I try to have quantum effects, which can only happen on a subatomic scale, translate them up into macro scale. Um, That way they'll be strange and alien, but they'll have a kind of internal consistency to them. I'm always afraid, I always try hard to prevent the reader from thinking, Oh, I see. This is an imaginary story. I I want the reader uh, to the biggest extent possible to take the stories as being as realistic as a a detective novel or a western. Um and therefore I yeah, I do try to make even though it's outlandish, impossible, weird stuff going on, I try to make it internally consistent so that uh, to, to, I hope, uh, appreciable extent, the reader will think, oh, yeah, right, I see. Uh, Weird as hell, certainly, but um, almost I could see how this would happen, which is asking a lot, but it's what I try to do. Uh, And and, and when it it all comes together and it's like... uh... And the reader's like, oh, yeah, it's almost like reading a mystery story, but it's, uh, you know, the supernatural elements um, are revealed in, in, a, in a moment. Like the story Pat Moore, for instance, um, which there's a, there's a, y'all, you write a lot of humor uh, in, with the, in, in with the weird and strange and kind of creepy um, as well. Uh, can you kind of explain the magic of this? Because, you know, it, it, it eventually becomes... Uh, obvious to the reader what's going on, and it's, I think it's funny as hell. Um, well, yeah. Anytime, I mean, if you take supernatural intrusions into reality as actually happening, uh, it's going to be grotesque at some points, and grotesque is next door to funny. Um, and so it's likely there's likely to be some funny bits. 
Um, yeah, basically that was um, the old magical tradition that if you know somebody's name, you have power over them, uh, that names are an important part of your identity, and therefore uh, a powerful ghost who wanted to come back would try to find somebody who had the same name that they had had. And if it I had just got a one of those chain letters saying, you know, copy this and pass it on to 10 people and you'll get good luck. And I tied that in with the same name business and, uh, and yeah, following it out according to its admittedly crazy logic, um, the events of the story sort of were inevitable. <laughs> well, you just have to kind of read it to, uh, to get, it's one of those things you have to read to believe, but, uh, I think it's a great story as well. Um, one of the things that pops up again and again, also in your short fiction and in your books is that, um, you are kind of against, and maybe this is because of your Catholic background. I don't know. It seems a real moral point with, with Tim Powers characters and well, at least stories, um, seeking earthly immortality is not a good thing to be doing in, in your fiction. Um, it's the downfall of a lot of the bad guys in your novels because they just can't help themselves. Um, Stranger Ties is Blackbeard, uh, for instance. So what's so bad about stealing a bunch of people's souls and living forever like Pat, Pat Moore tried to do? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it may be because I'm Catholic, um, but it's always seemed to me that um, it, trying to live forever, it's like trying to stay in high school forever. Or it's like a, a caterpillar who's scared of turning into a cocoon and wants to stay a caterpillar forever. Um, it seems like unnaturally trying to dig in your heels at one point in a progression. Um, and I think if anybody succeeded, even in getting a lifetime of several hundred years, uh, there would be special psychoses that would crop up. Um, Heinlein and I think Stan Robinson have dealt with memory problems with very extended lifetimes. Um, and I think after the third or fourth millennium, a person would start to sort of be twiddling their thumbs and looking around and thinking, well, where did everybody go? I'm still here, but all those people I've known, where did they go? Um, do they know something I don't? Uh, it, it seems... Uh, so it's kind of a sad... I mean, you feel sorry for them. Yeah, it's it's um, insistently staying in one adolescent phase just because it's comfortable. You know the rules. You know where the restrooms are. You know where the snack wagon is. Uh, and they say, well, you know, there's college, there's jobs, there's marriage, etc. No, I, I like high school. I know where the restrooms are. So in a way... Um some of your heroes and uh, are doing these bad actors a favor by letting them go on. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, go on to hell perhaps. <laughs> yeah. God knows what exactly, but, um, yeah, uh, for better or worse, it's the next stage of the mathematics. Yeah. And they hold up things in the world from, from, from being the way they should. They, often well, that's, create a stasis-like state in, in your stories. Yeah, if there really were immortals, the rest of us would be thinking, you still hanging around? You still using up food and oxygen that the rest of us could use? I mean, what are you doing? You you writing great symphonies? Come on. Uh, you're not supposed to be hanging around this long. Uh, you're still just burning ship and, and lighting fuses. Yeah, yeah really. Look at your carbon footprint. Move on. <laughs> So, um, what, how do you decide another process question? Um, how do you decide what's going to be a story and what's going to be a, a novel? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, for a short story, um, you get an idea for a, a particular situation, uh, a particular 
don't know, difficulty or outlandish choice that a character would not be able to avoid. And it, um, for a short story, it's a striking, isolated problem with just uh, one particular package of color or weirdness. Um, it it would not fill a novel. To make a novel of it, you'd have to inflate it with a lot of styrofoam. Um, but what's interesting about a short story would be its local particularity. Um, and, of course, I, being a science fiction fan, I grew up reading hundreds, if not thousands, of short stories because our field, especially in the first 30, 40, 50 years of it, um, was mostly short stories. Yeah. And so I think I kind of uh, internalized uh, that close-focus perspective for short stories. You, um, that's another thing we should mention about you. Um, you really like the old stuff. You're, you're, uh, yeah, a reader of, of the, the old astoundings and, and weird tales. (laughs) Yeah, I love, um, the whole spectrum of science fiction. I think it's a mistake to sort of plant your beginning at, 1990, 2000, 2010, um, because there's such a rich landscape of uh, fiction from the 30s on. I mean, from Stanley Weinbaum on. And uh, I, I think the pinnacle still of science fiction is Robert Heinlein, uh, especially his juveniles. I reread things like Citizen of the Galaxy and Have Spacesuit Will Travel and Starman Jones, I, I find myself rereading them pretty steadily. And all those writers like Cutner and Moore, Lee Brackett, Eric Frank Russell, A.E. Van Vogt, uh, still have a lot of electricity in them. And original thoughts, which original situations, plot ideas, which subsequent writers have made use of, but I think it would be a mistake to derive those notions from the derivatives, that there's value in going back and getting them in their original, pure, first-appearance form. Yeah, getting the the elixir at the source. Right, right, rather than, you know, touched up with Angostura bitters or Tabasco or something by people who came along later. Not a lot of readers but a lot of people think that the world was invented 10 to 20 years ago and that, that everyone before was not quite as smart as we are today. But in, yeah. in fact, a lot of them were smarter than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, a perspective, an erroneous perspective, that um, science fiction people especially uh, should and probably do avoid. Yeah. The that, idea that... Possibly what makes us kind of special is that we... It, we readers of science fiction exist in an expanded present. Right. We avoid chronocentrism, uh, the idea that culture today is smarter and more moral than any previous have been, uh, that uh, writers and people in general of previous centuries were dumb and that we have now arrived at the apex of enlightenment. Uh, I always like to remind myself that 50 years from now, our 2017 assumptions and beliefs and convictions are going to be looked at as certainly wrong and probably immoral. Uh, You don't want to be strapped into your 2017 eyeglasses yeah um unless they're yours i would i would be okay with <laughs> being in a tim power story for a while so uh well i wouldn't want to be the main character oh no put you'd want to be a so bystander much. yes exactly so so what are you working on at the moment uh right now i'm writing a sequel to alternate roots which um We'll deal with consequences um, uh, 
that the protagonists of that novel are now living with uh, the events of that book um, had the consequence of making them more aware of the supernatural world and making the supernatural world more aware of them. And it'll have to do with some bits of L.A. history, uh, specifically some things Cecil B. DeMille got up to, and the 1950s beat scene along the coast in Venice and Topanga, and uh, some modern Silicon Valley types who decide they've figured out, on the basis of those historical things, how to achieve and benefit from a weird version of the singularity. Cool. We're really looking forward to that, and we'll be bringing it out. Um, that, and we'll be bringing out alternate routes as well. Um, that is, we being Bane, where I am uh, senior editor. So uh, there's so much more we could talk about the collection, which uh, is just full of wonderful stuff. We have alternate routes and the Fault Line uh, series, new editions that Bane is bringing out. Anything else from the collection that uh, we might want to touch on? Uh, at the moment, I mean, we could talk about it all for a long time, but uh... oh, um, I'm I I got to admit, just between you and me, uh, that I'm very pleased to have uh, all the short stories collected in one place because um, I find that for short stories more than novels, um, they tend to be, if not autobiographical, at least using a lot more pieces of my actual life whole. Um, the short story Sufficient Unto the Day, for example, which deals with a disastrous Thanksgiving dinner, was very autobiographical. Um, if members of my family or my wife's family read that, they'll think, I remember that. I was there. Um, so yeah, uh, with my short stories, I tend to uh, use my actual life more than there's opportunity for in uh, a big novel. Well, sufficient unto the day is is basically kind of the idea of if if your cranky relatives just didn't die and still right. came around for Thanksgiving. Ghost of grandpa and grandma at the table, as well as their descendants. Yeah, and what unfortunate things might result. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful story and a wonderful collection. The book is Down and Out in Purgatory, The Collected Stories of Tim Powers, and is now at booksellers everywhere. Um, well, Tim, thank you so much for being with us, and we hope to uh, have you back to talk with us. Well, again. thank you, Tony. Yes, I'd love to be back anytime. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 17 
Terrigan, Jemiatha's Jumble Stop, Birth 12. Tokol sat alone on the bridge. The human members of the team, Tali and Hazenthal, were resting in their bunks, gathering their resources for the upcoming period of stress. For, she reflected, no matter Admiral Bunter's choice, dealing with the consequences would no doubt be stressful in the extreme. If the Admiral elected to take the last program, she suspected that Tolly would be cast into depression and grief. After he had performed his part, of course. Tolly was not only a professional, he would not wish to burden the Admiral with his distress. Jeeves had noted in his briefing documents that Tolly Jones was extremely likable. He also noted that while this trait was a standard design component, it was his opinion that Tolly was a person of integrity. Having had the opportunity to observe Tolly Jones over a number of days, Tokel was inclined to agree with her parents' assessment. The weight of a step on Terrigan's gantry brought her attention to the outside scans. A familiar dark figure was walking toward the lock, hands in pockets and pale hair falling about her face. Inkirani Yo, now, Tokel thought, opening the hatch. There was not much evidence that Inkirani Yo possessed overmuch integrity. She did, however, have other interesting qualities, among them an ongoing affiliation with Crystal Energy Consultants and a graduation with honors from the Lyre Institute for Exceptional Children. Those two facts were interesting indeed, she thought, as Inky walked down the hall toward the bridge. Tokel sealed the lock and turned to greet their guest. Inky stopped just one step on the bridge, head up and eyes bright. Good evening to you, Pilot Tokel. I hope I am not inconvenient. Not in the least, Tokel assured her with complete sincerity. I will be pleased to have company while the rest of the team recruits their strength for the upcoming procedure. Inky's eyebrows rose, and she dropped gracefully onto the observer's chair. Though a pilot herself, Inky did not presume the co-pilot's chair on Terrigan, even though it was empty and far more comfortable, so Tokel thought, than the observer's station. Has the admiral agreed to the transfer? She asked. He has not, Tokel said. He asked us to leave him in order that he might think and do research. It is not at all clear that he will accept the transfer. He might, I feel, choose another option. Inky pursed her lips and whistled lightly. Mentor Tolly did tell him about the cranium. She moved a hand, the question scarcely off her tongue, and rushed right on. But of course he did. Mentor Tolly is a professional. He was very clear concerning the choices, how each would be delivered, and the effects of both, Tokel said. My fear is that the Admiral will accept neither transfer nor the final program. Inky froze. Your pardon, pilot, but Station will not clear that for lift. Stu will not and he speaks with the voice of Jemiatha's admin. They fear for the lives of the regulars, some of whom are occasionally known to perform small acts of pilferage. Should the admiral remain, well, but he will not remain in his present state, will he? He will continue to deteriorate, as we know, and as surely he does. Worse, though Stu would rather the Admiral be far away from Jemiatha orbit, 
there is Stu's alternate, Vez, whose alt crew have built cannon, the better to clear their lanes of a significant hazard to navigation. If the Admiral is not soon removed, alt crew will. I have this from Stu and from Vez. Engage their weapons, which will endanger the regulars and the station, far more than ever any pirates have done in all of Jemiatha's station history. The alt crew will not accept a rehabilitated admiral, Tokel asked. Avowedly not. It is to my everlasting shame that I failed of the commission the mentor laid upon me. Stu alone I might eventually have persuaded. Stu and Vez? Perhaps, for she is in the habit of allowing him precedence. Stu, Vez, and the crew? have proven too much even for my persuasive abilities, which are not, I assure you, inconsiderable. Does the crew give a reason for their adamance? Inky turned her palms up. I am given to understand that some of them are devout. Tokol sighed. Indeed, indeed, Inky said. It is extremely vexatious. For myself, I cannot see Mentor Barrick Jones pursuing any other course but a transfer, an inlaying of the most basic sort, and a remove to some safer port where tutoring may go forth. She lifted her hands, scraped her hair back from her face, and began to twist it into an untidy knot at the back of her head. And yourself? Inky paused and looked to Tokel, both hands still tangled in her hair. Myself? she asked. Yes. What course for you, Mentor Yo, if you had the solving of this problem? Which, happily for all, I do not, Inky said, bending her head again. She finished with the knot and sighed folding her hands in her lap and showing Tokol a solemn face. Pilot, I was commissioned to remove a rogue AI. I would have offered first the transfer because I would not see a life wiped out. But such a stratagem as we now see from the Admiral, this stall. Had it been I, Pilot, the Admiral would have received the last program before I cleared the deck this day. You would have forced him? Inky sighed, raised her hands, and let them fall. It does not reflect well on me, but I am no Tolance Barrick Jones. I would have stunned the Admiral, and while he was offline, inserted the final program and initiated a manual install. One failed comp in such a loosely ordered system would have been sufficient to destroy the Admiral as he knew himself to be. However, I am not a monster, pilot, to abandon a whittling to the dangers of life. I swear to you that I would have been thorough and scrubbed all systems clean. She shook her head. Not the best death, perhaps but not so ill as some. Tokol considered her. I am curious, mentor, as I am no mentor myself. Ask. If it is within my power, I will answer. Thank you. Tokol gave her a small, serious smile. I wonder about this stun. How is that accomplished? Inky blinked again, then her face relaxed. Mentor Tolly has been long absent from the field. During his rustication, a new tool has been developed to aid us in our work. Here. She reached into her jacket and pulled out a thick black rod, which she held between her palms so Tokel could see the length of it and the large red button. A push of the button generates a field which disrupts the fine logic centers, producing a state 
similar to that which might follow my using this same stick to cosh a human being on the head. Or so I have been told. The effect lasts for some minutes, enough for a nimble mentor to do what must be done. Tokel felt unease, which was quickly sublimated into curiosity. I wonder if you acquired that tool from the uncle, she murmured. Inky's eyebrows lifted, but she did not even attempt to dissemble. In fact, it was part of a specialized kit prepared for my use during the last task I performed for Crystal Energy. When it came time for payment to be made, I asked that this item be part of my fee. I see. She scanned the thing again, fascinated, finding only a small and ticklish emptiness in her deep scans. Though visual showed the rod plainly, a black bar between Inky's black hands. With an effort, she moved her attention. We are well met, mentor, she said. May I ask another question? Please, Inky said, slipping the rod away into her jacket. Your questions are so interesting. Thank you. I wonder, have you heard any small whisper from your business associates regarding the discovery of an old, I may say, a very old intelligence? I have heard whispers here and there, Inky said, leaning forward in the observer's chair. Tokel felt a spark of excitement. Do you know if the uncle is involved in its awakening? Why, yes, Inky said slowly. I believe I have heard that too. But Pilot, I must say, with respect, that such whispers as have come to my ears would have the old one to be not merely old, but ancient. A war machine. More than one whisperer would have it, from the war for which we fled the old universe. She paused. You are interested in this? I wonder why. Why? Are you not interested in what we might learn from an intelligence so venerable from, if rumor is true, the old universe? It is too much to hope that the uncle not be in it. This is precisely the sort of event that draws him. Like a moth to flame, Inky agreed softly. But, Pilot Tokel, what... Censors reported that Tali had wakened, and in doing so had also wakened Hazenthal. Let us speak of this later, she said. Inky bowed her head in agreement. Indeed, she said. Let us speak of it later. The self-analysis was complete. Admiral Bunter accessed the report, which was remarkably succinct. Fear. So, this agitation of thought, this inability to plan, the repeating and increasingly intense desire to flee the station, this piece of space, these humans who beset him. He was afraid. Afraid of death. He applied logic, for in truth, he had been dying before Tokel Lorlin, Tolly Jones, their assistant, and their pilot guard had arrived at Jemiatha's. Even now, he was dying. A fact supported by the logic and truth modules. He had been living with the fact of his imminent demise since the very moment of his birth. Why then was he frightened now? Tolly Jones had offered nothing more than a simple quickening of a process already engaged. Ethics pinged, though the Admiral had not asked for its opinion. Still, the point was made, and it was fair. The dying that he was engaged upon was likely to be painful, 
a tearing away of pieces of himself as the ships that held the computers in which he existed began to crumble, as the computers themselves began to fail. That, he thought, would be the worst. Feeling his intellect fading, his ability to reason crumbling, sections of his own mind no longer accessible. That was the process upon which he was engaged, the conditions under which he had, thus far, survived unafraid. Tolly Jones had offered him no less a gift than mercy, a quick and painless ceasing of worry, and his whole desire was to run and hide himself until the man should go away. Logic merely affirmed that fear was not logical. He thought illogically of jumping, not a new thought and unacceptable for all it had been considered more than once. The small trader among his seven derelicts had taken fire, seams had torn, systems had disrupted. The welds put in place by Stu's workers had not been in any sense repairs, merely a patching up convenient for the yard. It would not reach the jump point intact. Mere station keeping stressed it dangerously, though the Admiral had taken care with its positioning. There was, logic reminded, this other thing that Tolly Jones had offered him. This transfer to a specially prepared environment, thence to a better ship. His research had shown him that such things were possible. His research had also shown him that transfers failed in a statistically relevant percentage of attempts. If the transfer failed, he would die. As he was dying in any case, what matter? And yet, something, not logic, not analytics, not even useless ethics, pinged and pinged again for his attention. He realized it had been doing so for quite some time, and he, too agitated to attend it. Had pirates come while all his attention was elsewhere? He snatched at the screens, at scan, at weapons. But no. The demand for his attention came from the tidy little subroutine that had unpacked itself into his system when he had accessed file name Tokol. It had been a remarkably useful program for all its diminutive proportions and had gained him thinking space and the energy to utilize it. It was now offering a sub-subroutine called REST. He ran an analysis. The purpose of the little routine was to pack several high-level modules which were extraneous to core function. It was, the Admiral thought, perhaps it was wise to divert most of his energy to core processes. He would be able to concentrate more fully on the issues and make a rational decision. Deliberately, Admiral Bunter gave the sub-subroutine permission to run. The quarters were spacious. Common area, galley, fresher, and sleeping compartment. On their previous inspection, they had seen that Dov's leathers, cleaned and mended, hung in the locker, boots at attention beneath. They returned to find two seed pods on the table and a clear plastic box that seemed to contain all of those things that had been on his person when he had fallen, on Moonstruck, including his boot knife, his palm gun, and his pistol. He lifted the top of the box, leaving the unripe pods, his on the left, hers on the right, where they were. His piloting license was half hidden beneath a mingling of coins. He picked it up and slid it into the pocket of his pants. A gleam of silver, not a coin, drew his eye, and his heart missed a beat, even as he glanced at his soft, ringless hands. 
The silver gleam was a puzzle ring in the old style. It had been Aleana's and had come to him, her life mate, upon her death. He put the lid back on the box, without taking up the ring or any of his weapons, and looked across the table, mindful that Aliana was watching him. Yes, he murmured. You did not ask to use the pin beam, she remarked. Ought we not to inform the Delm that our task is completed, that we are in good order and desire to return home? Are we, he asked, in good order? She tipped her head, the gesture achingly and entirely Aliana's. Are we not? She moved nearer the table, a ragged, uncertain step, with nothing pilot-like about it. He clenched his teeth and drew a hard breath. Aliana had, perhaps, not fully examined their situation. Perhaps she considered it likely that the uncle had dealt fair in this particular matter, avoiding Corval's anger, sufficient reason for his efforts. Dav, I am not convinced, he said carefully, that the Delm will want us home. We are not trustworthy, and Corval cannot risk a breach from within. Untrustworthy, because we have been through this process, you mean, and stand reborn? Stand reborn. Say rather we stand wholly created by the uncle for his own purposes. That was sharper than he had intended. Surely only one of us was wholly created by the uncle, she said, calm in the face of his anger. You, Vancella, are yourself. Did you not attend? I heard that my genetic material was introduced into a vessel made by the uncle. Do we know what is common with such vessels? Is there an override switch just for an instance? Or perhaps these particular vessels carry a disease specially tailored to infect those who share Corval genes. I can think of a dozen ways in which we might be traps and dangerous to Corval. Surely Valcon can think of a dozen more. Aliana said nothing. We are in the uncle's power, he said not to mention that he now has Corval material in his library of such things. He turned away, pacing toward the tiny galley. What shall we do? She remained calm, her tone merely curious. He faced her and found nothing to say. You believe that we may be a danger to ourselves and to kin, she said, looking up into his face, green eyes wide. Especially, you believe that I am suspect, made from whole cloth as I am, and with only my word and the uncle's that I am Aliana Kalen. I could, could I not, be an instance of the uncle himself, who has taken up this masquerade to beguile you and to insinuate himself into Corval. He looked at her and could see nothing of her state of mind or her emotions. He, who had been a scout, trained to read emotion and intent in the set of a shoulder or the tension in a face. Aliana, when they had first been mated, each in their proper body and years distant from the terrible things that would befall them, he could read Aliana so well that it seemed as if their bond was whole and linked them heart to heart and mind to mind. This body before him, not Aliana's, its muscles unformed, its occupant not yet wholly in charge of her face. There was no reading such a body. He would do better attempting to read a doll. Empathy was his other tool. He was no healer, but his empathy rating was high, and it was through that sense that he tasted her anger. 
and her anguish. Aliana, he said, I might also be subverted. Of course, I believe myself to be Darv Yosfelium, but how shall I know if I have been tampered with or provided with an override switch? She finished for him. He inclined his head stiffly, as I said. Do you believe me to be Aliana Kalen? She asked. He turned his hands up. I believe that you believe you are Aliana Kalen. And you may be Aliana Kalen. I would say, indeed, that the uncle would be a fool, which I very well know that he is not, if you were not, to the best of his ability to assure it, Aliana Kalen. He sighed and turned his palms down, meeting her eyes steadily. There is nothing in all that to say you are not also an incident of the uncle. She inclined her head. And if we cannot even trust ourselves, then what does this new opportunity bring us? Neither joy, nor employment, nor even a comforting return to the care of kin. It seems uncivil, given the efforts of our host, but perhaps we ought simply to kill ourselves now and spare Valcon the necessity. Let us discuss the subject more fully after we have napped. For this present, it is the topic of Aeliana Kalen, which excites my greatest interest. I must ask you, Vancella, if I am not Aeliana, where is she? She was not where she had been. Say that it was inside of his head. He was certain of that. He raised his hands to shoulder level, showing her empty palms and widespread fingers, feeling ill and lightheaded. She is not with me, he said slowly. Perhaps she has gone to join Kiladi. It is possible, she said. However, I maintain that I am she, and I would have you believe and believe in me. I cannot, perhaps, convince either of us that I do not also harbor someone else. But I would have your belief, Vangela, as I had it for all the years when I was a ghost or a figment, spun from love and loss. She moved her hand, showing him the table, the box, the seed pods. Do you think, Dav, that the uncle will have worked out a method of knowing which of those pods was intended for whom? It seems unlikely. We then have a true test before us. Thus, she stepped to the table, her hand closing around a pod, around his pod, and his heart broke in the instant before she threw it at him, striking him fairly in the chest. Not ripe, she said, but keep it close. Mine, she snatched it up, as greedy as if she had not eaten for weeks. Mine is ripe, she said, even as it fell open in her palm, as eager to be consumed as she was to consume it. He put his yet unripe pod into the pocket with his pilot's license, tears pricking his eyes. Not wholly the uncle in disguise, then, but truly the essence of Aliana Kalen, trapped in a vessel created by the uncle, which yet might enclose untold treacheries. Dav, she said, and he looked up, seeing that she had finished the pod. Dav, she said again, I feel so... Her eyes rolled up. Her untrained muscles went limp. He threw himself forward, meaning to catch her, only to have his own body fail him. Feet tangling, he went down into an ignominious heap. Too stupid even to get his arms out in time to break his fall, 
and heard her head strike the carpeted floor with a muted thump. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the flowering of a culture of lotus flower-eating ghost ship pirates who board your vessel, then forget what they came aboard for, and steal all your marmalade. Plus thanks and praise for Tim Powers, author of Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars 